welcome to But Where Are You From, a podcast by Be Seen. You have me doing your intro today. I am Charlie Wong from Be Seen, um, and I have never done an intro to a podcast before. So if this doesn't go well, I promise you the rest of the podcast is actually better than this intro. So it's fine. Just stick with us. Um, today, Mayan and myself were joined by the incredible Tiffany Yu from Diversability. Tiffany shared so much amazing insight with us about what it's like to be a disabled person, an Asian American woman, and how all her identities sit in her one body. As a person myself who is covered by the Disability Act, speaking to someone like Tiffany, Tiffany was literally incredible for me. Um, I shared some of my own experiences of my disability and the physical adjustments that I needed at my workplace that weren't met. And it's given me more desire to kind of speak up um, and given me food for thought about how we can create more inclusive workplaces on just spaces in general, to be honest. Um, just to let you know that, that in this episode, we do touch on topics such as racism, oppression and traumatic events. Also, just to let you know, in the first quarter of this podcast, we did experience some technical issues. So we have re-recorded some short bits, um, but this podcast might not, at the very start at least, it might not flow quite as well as you're used to. But um, Tiffany was so insightful and so great that we didn't want to cut anything out. So um, please bear with it. It is only the first quarter. Um, we did fix it by the second quarter. Um, let's just blame the worldwide internet. It's not our fault. Um, but I really would encourage you to stick with it because it is amazing. I really do hope you enjoy this episode. If you did, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and let us know on social media. Um, you can find all our links and Tiffany's links at the end of the podcast. Thank you very much. Bye. Hello and welcome to another episode of But Where Are You From? A podcast by Be Seen, Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network. I'm your host, Mayanne, and with me are my colleague and co-founder of Be Seen, Charlie, and a very special guest today, we have Tiffany Yu. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Tiffany. Thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. And appreciate you making the, the time difference work. You are in the Bay Area? Yep. I'm in San Francisco. It is 11 a.m. where I am. So uh, you told me it was a nice day today. So I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to seeing how that manifests for me. I really yeah, hope great. that it's not going to turn out to be really grey because then you'll just be like, those girls from Be Seen, they, they told me it was going to be sunny and then I woke up and it rained all day. They told me fake news. Yeah, exactly. We're sending you our best vibes from the future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I have always wanted to visit San Francisco. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, I feel like as, as well, I'm sure, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when we say um, the word Asians in the UK, it generally has a kind of different connotation to what you have in the States. Um, in that most of the time when people use the word Asian in the UK, what's inferred is somebody of South Asian heritage, Indian, Sri Lankan, Bengali, etc. And very rarely the assumption is East Asian or Southeast Asian. Um, and I feel like we as British East and Southeast Asians, we often look to the US as a kind of big sibling when it comes to, I don't know, everything Asian. You have like these massive Asian American communities and lots of pockets of um, Korea towns and Chinatowns. And I don't know, I feel like we, we I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. And I would love to, honestly, if I were to uh, visit the States again, I would just do a, a like a, a tour of like just a tour of like Chinatowns and Koreatowns. <laughs> I love that. Actually, there, there was an author here and maybe you'll have her on her on your podcast, but it, um, her name is Jenny Eight Lee and she's an author who wrote something called the Fortune Cookie Chronicles, which I think was a book around just trying to find either like the best Chinese restaurant or was it the best dumpling restaurant? I can't remember, but but she but that book may be a good guide for you as you navigate your way through Chinatowns and Koreatowns here. So, you maybe know, like it, need, it's, go ahead. Maybe we need to make a series on Be Seen on like written up um, reviews of like different Chinatowns, Koreatowns, et cetera. That'd be 
fantastic. And then we can just sample them all. <laughs> what I also want is like, I don't know, the, I'm, I'm sure that lots of people from different communities kind of have these unofficial circles, you know, but what it's like to travel while Asian in this country or this country, um, you know, not only do I want to kind of know what to be aware of and stuff, but I also want the recommendations for the kind of places that I'm going to want to eat or I'm going to find the the cool spots and stuff like that. Maybe we need to work on like the travel guide. <laughs> it could be like a new project for us. Yes, because we've not got enough projects anyway. <laughs> I know. Are we yeah. definitely in that kind of uh, constant cycle of, oh, we're so busy, we can't take on anything else. Oh, do you know what would be really cool if we start a completely <laughs> new project? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, we kind of went off on a bit of a tangent already, um, but let's start with something very important. Please tell us a bit about yourself, Tiffany, and most importantly, please tell us, but where are you from? And feel free to answer that in whichever way suits you. Um, it is designed to be a bit of a bait question, to be honest. Yeah, sure. So I am the first generation daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant, my dad, and a refugee from the Vietnam War, my mom. And they both came over to the U.S. in the 70s, in the 1970s. My mom war-related, my dad school-related, and they met at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., which is the area that I grew up in. So I'm the youngest of four, and a big turning point for me, or I guess if I take a step back, I think that my mom and my dad, and I can't confirm, just had a hard time coming to the U.S., whether it was their accents of speaking English as their second language. Uh, and so my siblings and I did not learn our mother tongue or our father tongue or any other tongue other than English. And in retrospect, now that I'm in my 30s, you know, my mom spoke Cantonese, Mandarin, Vietnamese, French. My dad spoke Mandarin, Taiwanese. My mom learned Taiwanese so that she could communicate with my dad. Anyway, lots of languages across the Asian diaspora that I speak English. So um, so a big turning point happened when, when I was nine, and this ties into the work that I do today. On a car ride home with my dad, he lost control of the car and we got into a car accident. He unfortunately passed away and I acquired a slew of injuries, including breaking a couple bones in one of my legs and permanently paralyzing one of my arms. And much, much later, actually over 20 years later, I would be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. I bring that up because in the context of my Asian family, a death in the family, trauma or mental health, AKA the car accident, and now a child who had a physical disability were all seen as very shameful within how within my family's cultural context. And so I internalized that we shouldn't tell anyone about anything related to the car accident. So I wore long sleeves all the time. I told everyone my dad was away on a trip. And now uh, circling back to people that I knew in elementary, middle and high school, they're like, oh, Tiffany, I didn't know about your dad. I'm so sorry. Or like, Tiffany, I didn't know about the car accident. Like, I had no idea. I thought that your injury was from birth. And I wanted to bring that up here in this intro question, where are you from? Because the way that I internalized and had to keep the car accident a secret really influenced my self-image growing up. Um, and my Asian upbringing influenced how I healed or didn't heal through that. So a lot of the work I do now is in the disability advocacy space. I run a community business called Diversibility, which is really focused on exploring what it means to be disabled and proud, and also what it means to be disabled and live well. And to be totally transparent, I never really thought about my Asian identity until I was confronted with it over the last couple of years with the rise of anti-Asian violence and harassment, uh, at least here in the U.S. and, and likely in, in some other places abroad. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, such a personal story and, you know, showing how you've got to where you are today. It's really um, amazing to hear your story and what you're doing now and how you're kind of moving forward with that and helping others with it. And I think 
something that really struck me in what you said, Tiffany, is that your disability has really helped you uncover different parts of your identity that maybe you didn't really think about before. Um, and I also particularly resonated with what you said about not really having had to reckon with your Asian American identity until it kind of, you know, was thrust upon you until you didn't have a choice um, because of the rise in in violence, um, physical and verbal assault, which um, obviously we all we all know about, and that's kind of how Be Seen was was formed uh, in response to that. In in as a part of a, a desire to create a positive space where we can champion our communities and and celebrate as well as recognizing the pain, we also recognize the joy. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so to come back to what you, you mentioned about your work, you're a disability advocate and an entrepreneur. You are the founder and CEO of Diversability, as you mentioned, among many other amazing things. I was quite overwhelmed and intimidated when I was reading through your website earlier. Um, and your website says that you're on a mission to increase intersectional disability representation and democratize visibility. So. If you wouldn't mind, could you tell us a bit about your work uh, and what you mean by democratizing visibility? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that last part first around democratizing visibility. So for me, it was really around my own personal experiences of diminishing my own light and my own story. And when I talk about democratizing visibility, for me, it's who gets to choose whose stories gets shared, you know? Um, and when I say democratize visibility, I'm like, all of your stories deserve a stage, deserve a platform, deserve a podcast episode, a podcast interview. And how did we get to a point where some of us thought that our stories were shameful and we shouldn't tell anyone about them? So that's kind of the answer to your second question. I think on the first question around my work, it again was also inspired by my own personal experiences of feeling so isolated and alone in my experience. And as you look into the research, you know, disabled people are some of the most socially isolated and excluded communities or identities out there. Uh, we just understand the experience of feeling excluded and isolated so intimately, so intimately, like heartbreakingly intimately, if I can put those two words together. And, and so we're a community. And it's, it's funny because we've been able to kind of like build a business around it, which I think is kind of interesting. And no one, up until the pandemic, I don't think folks really valued the power of community. But two two things really fa fascinating happen in community. Number one is you realize you're not alone in your experience, right? Even if you look at the mission of Be Seen, it's so that you can find each other, right? And realize like how powerful you are as a collective. I think the second thing that happens is that you start to unlearn some of the harmful things that you may have internalized, at least in my work around our bodies and our minds and the way that they work or work differently. And I think that that unlearning process in community is so powerful. And then once you've unlearned that, and as a function of being part of a community, you start to realize, wow, like I'm starting to see role models and possibility models of who I can become. And I can be proud to be disabled, even though everyone is telling me that I should hide the parts of myself that may look or act differently. Wow, how liberating is it to just be myself, right? And so a lot of our work is really focused on, I call these the disability origin stories. How can we move from that disability origin story of this tragic car accident that Tiffany was in to a second story where now Tiffany is the CEO and founder of this community business that has, you know, within our ecosystem, over 60,000 disabled and non-disabled folks who are committed to envisioning a world that is, that to us is built um, from the ground up that is disability centered and disability forward. So um, all of that to say that I, 
I love what I do. Uh, the best way we describe ourselves to our corporate partners is that we're kind of like a disability employee resource group that exists outside of a company. Um, and sometimes that's a little bit easier for people to wrap their minds around versus a community. Um, but if you're new to kind of the employee resource groups, they are based around different underrepresented identities if you work at a large company. So you may have one for your LGBTQIA plus employees. You may have one for your women identifying employees. You may have one for uh, Asian, um, really runs the gamut. And we're starting to see a lot more disability employee resource groups spring up. And one of the questions we often get is, you know, how do I get people to join our disability ERG? And I'm like, we need to make disability aspirational. We need to make it fun. Like I, I spent so long thinking that I couldn't be funny and thrive and have fun in my disability, in my disabled body. Uh, but as a result of me kind of creating this, and I was doing my own unlearning process as we were building this company, through my own unlearning process, I'm like, I'm really proud to be myself. <laughs> and how can I get other people to kind of be on their own journey? So, so yeah, so when I talked about these disability origin stories, it's how can we get you from that first story to that second story of being proud, loud and proud in your disability identity. And if you can't be proud, because sometimes some disabilities are debilitating, how can you just accept that this is a part of how your life is? And, and in pride, there's also grief. You know, how can you, it's okay to grieve what your life was once before um, and, and lean in and grow into this new body or this new identity that you have. Yeah, hearing you speak, Tiffany, is so kind of inspiring. And, you know, I have my own um, disability origin story, as you so really put it, well put it. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to take up too much time, but just for some background, um, five years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I underwent treatment um, surgery, chemotherapy. And then in the UK, if you've had cancer and undergone treatment, you are then covered by the Disability Act for Life. So by all means, I am classed as disabled. Um, I don't feel that um, my disability impacts my day-to-day -day life, um, but it has in the past impacted me. So, you know, I'm very aware that um, anyone can become disabled at any time and, you know, accessibility systems benefit everyone. So as you were talking then about the employee resource groups, we've got them at my workplace, which I do for my day job. Um, and I am parts, a part of the one for ethnic minorities and the one for disabilities. And we had a really great discussion about kind of accessible, uh, accessible workplaces, basically. So I was given an example when I first started at my job at that, that I'm in at the moment, the door to get into the building of the office was this massive, heavy metal door, and it opened towards you. Now, no one had ever batted an eyelid before because everyone was able-bodied and could open it straight away. Whereas when I first started, I struggled a lot with strength in my right arm because of my surgery. And it's not that I couldn't open the door. I could open the door, but it was a struggle. Like it was difficult. And I raised it to my boss and I said, well, you know, I can only just open it. How does someone who uses a wheelchair open the door? It's, it's physically impossible to open it if you're a wheelchair user. Eventually, I got my strength back. So, you know, I kind of let it drop, so to speak. Um, but then along comes COVID and all of a sudden the door is now a contactless door. So you don't even have to touch anything. And all of a sudden it opens. And I'm like, so you wouldn't do that. But now, you know, COVID, and it's not that I think it shouldn't be done for COVID, but if you can do it for COVID, you could have done it beforehand. Um, and I think, you know, accessibility really benefits everyone. You know, it shouldn't just be a case that you do things because you have someone who needs, has specific needs or specific circumstances that need to be catered for. It should be for everyone so that anyone can come into the company and feel included. You don't have to have special treatment or anything like that because you're already working in a workplace that is inclusive. So it's really inspiring to hear you kind of talk about your work and what you do, because I think, you know, it makes such a difference and it really is the way we need to go. Well, just thinking of my work, really. <laughs> I can only really compare it to my work. It must have been so frustrating for disabled people to see that suddenly 
actually it was easy to make everything accessible. It was yeah. easy to make lots of jobs flexible, remote work, make things um you know, easier in terms of accessibility, just not when disabled people were asking for it. And I think that the pandemic has obviously exposed a lot of fissures that run very deep in our societies in terms of accessibility, in terms of, of different needs for people with different circumstances, whether that's um, you know, their, their accessibility needs or whether they have children or whether whatever it is. Um, and I almost feel that we are at a risk of just going back to the status quo of before and forgetting about everybody's needs. And that's why I think it's really important that all communities are pushing for access needs and pushing for greater visibility of, of people's needs because as with so many different types of marginalization, we can't just leave it to the people who are the most impacted by it. And like Charlie really rightly pointed out, an accessible world doesn't just benefit people with accessibility needs. It's actually better for everybody. So yeah, I, I really hope that we can move forward in a way that's that's going to be positive for everybody. Yeah. And I just want to give you a heads up that I changed my I had my microphone plugged in, but I wasn't actually using my microphone and now I'm using my microphone. Um, I mean, there's so many things to unpack there, right? It's first the ultimate microaggression to not consider someone's access needs and to have them ask for permission or have to ask to be accommodated on a daily, even hourly basis, right? So many people have been advocating for remote work as a reasonable accommodation, and it took a pandemic for companies and the world to realize that it was possible, right? Charlie talked about how this door is now contactless when before it was very difficult to open. And, you know, I, I agree that accessibility benefits everyone, but I also want to highlight that it doesn't feel good to intentionally or even unintentionally not include someone in how you design an experience. And I hope that people can kind of balance both of those by understanding access is not just compliance. There's actually a human who is benefiting from it. And at the same time, so for example, like I can't use one of my arms, maybe that door would have been difficult for me to open. That sucks. I can't open the door. You know, and and I wonder if like we can get so oftentimes I talk about allyship in my work and I talk about how allyship is really rooted in like intimacy and nuance and intimacy is do you care enough about me that you want to include me in how you're designing experiences and we can broadly define experiences as products and services and workplaces and the world right travel Um yeah, I, I, I think about this on a micro level because I think that's where allyship needs to start by knowing someone or having an intimate experience with disability to the macro level of, wow, this you know touchpad on our computer was originally designed with disability in mind and now we all use it. And wheels on a luggage like only came into existence when airports became wheelchair accessible. You know, and then I think about those like heavy leather bags that people would carry back in the day before we had roller bags. And I'm like, there's no way that I would have I would have I would have traveled as much as I as I do. Right. So, um, yeah, it's it's kind of this like paradox or this contradiction to say, yes, it benefits everyone. And even if it just benefits one person, that's amazing, too. Sometimes I look at my own work and I'm like, how can we create conversations that we're facilitating at scale, right? And then people are like, what about this technology thing or this VR empathy building thing? And I'm like, a simulation exercise is not someone's intimate day-to-day -day experience. And I think that both of you are kind of getting a little bit of the imagining and Charlie, you experienced it at firsthand, but a little bit of the imagining of not being able to open a door on a micro level, but think about how that feeds into every other part of our lives as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, 
it is so because to be honest I mean I'm not you know shy to say that before I went through what I went through I'd never really considered accessibility and how you know for other people it might impact them or like you say even on a very micro level what needs to be done to make sure that spaces are inclusive and spaces are accessible for everyone but then obviously when it did happen to me when I when I struggled with my strength it was like a whole new world and it like opened up my eyes to thinking how many things are not inclusive or how many spaces are not designed for people with different needs and you know it's really quite startling I, do, I, do, I can't speak for what the situation is like in um in the US but I know a lot of the workplaces I have worked at are not inclusive even in terms of they don't even have a lift to get up the stairs or you know they do have these doors that open towards you you have to scan yourself and then pull the door that kind of thing all these things that you know just do not facilitate an environment where people can bring them whole selves to work and you know whatever that might be and I think it's really important for me to continue to learn learn this kind of thing and kind of open my eyes to what what differences there are and what accessibility needs needs to look like because I don't think we're there in a lot of the spaces in the UK. And can I can I share an experience from work that I think helps put this into perspective? So Please. I start I started my career in investment banking. And every new hire at the bank, I don't know if they still do this, but every new hire at the bank had an, had an ergonomic assessment of our desk done. So what kind of chair do you need? Do you need a footstool? Do you need like a keyboard spongy thing rest? Uh, and when she came over to do my assessment, she noticed that I couldn't use one of my arms. And she asked, do you need speech to text software? And how proactive they were about that, that each individual employee had this ergonomic assessment and it was far more than an ergonomic assessment. It was really, what do you need in order to thrive in this job? And I, I try to translate the work that I do around accessibility and inclusion to say, how can we kind of like do the ergonomic assessment for every single person, disability or not? Because everyone is going to, you know, someone who's much taller than I am may need a chair that rises much higher, right? And again, the question comes back to what do you need in order to thrive in your role, right? Being able to open the door to even get in in the first place, you know? So um, when we start to frame things like that, it becomes less of this, oh man, disability is this other and more of this, like, we all need ergonomic assessments. All of us sit differently, you know, are, are going to do our work differently. And so, again, what do we need in order to make sure that we can do our job the best, right? To me, that's kind of the baseline. I think that's why we started having so many conversations around accessibility. But I think that oftentimes we like group accessibility with this like compliance thing again, when it's really like, I'm a human being who wants to work here. And so let's do this assessment, ergonomic or not, to figure out what I need. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just would make such a difference, wouldn't it? And I also think that, I mean, I don't, again, I don't know what the situation is like in the US, but in the UK, particularly when it comes to sort of smaller companies or smaller events, it's very much accessibility is something that okay well we'll think about it if we have someone who needs it which shouldn't be the case it shouldn't be that you know the the businesses and I'm thinking of one uh, workplace uh, in particular where you know there was no easy way to there was a door problem again no easy way to get in and if you were a wheelchair user or if you couldn't use one of your arms or whatever it would actually be quite difficult to get in and the response seemed to be, okay, but if someone needed to, we would just open the door. And that, but then you're putting somebody in a position where they have to ask, to, you know, please, can you help me? Rather than just having their, having their needs taken into account anyway. And I feel like that creates a kind of cycle, a vicious cycle, particularly when it comes to things like events. Like, okay, well, we'll make it accessible if there are any people who 
sign up or who buy tickets who have accessibility needs. If anybody checks that box, then we'll make it accessible. But people aren't going to come to an event that's not very, you know, if they have accessibility needs and the event is not very clear about what is in place to accommodate different people's needs, then they're probably not going to come anyway. So the whole vicious cycle just continues. And I just, yeah. we have such a, a, such a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, that um, in the UK, I mean, don't quote me on this, please, any pol policymakers, but I'm pretty sure that is kind of related to the Disability Act. So obviously the Disability Act covers all spectrum of disabilities. Um, and the rule is basically, if someone makes it known to you that they are disabled, then you have to make additional um, accommodations for them, be that in the workplace or at an event, whatever it might be. But before that, if you don't know or you're not told, do whatever you like type thing, um, which is, like you say, such a kind of an old-fashioned way to view it. Well, I don't even think old-fashioned way is the, is the right phrase, but, you know, the wrong way to view it. Um, it should be make those spaces right for everyone, like you say, an, an environment where everyone can be their whole self and thrive and, you know, bring their whole self to work, etc. you know, enjoy this event. Everyone should have access to that. It shouldn't be an afterthought of, oh, shit basically someone's coming along what can we do to make it you know work for them it should have been built in at the start yeah I mean I also think like I I think that interdependence is a part of life like I you know I've I've been on other podcasts before where they're like you know how do we make it so that people don't have to ask for help and I'm like I think we need to build a society where people feel empowered enough that it's okay to ask for help um because uh even even if I could use both of my arms, you know, as a woman who is petite, I may still have difficulty open, opening the door, you know? So um, I, I think about like, you know, at the hotels where they have the person in the front who like helps with the luggage and opens the door, like that is the type of kind of like universal access that I'm thinking of, right? So it's like, why does the hotel or the fancy building, I mean, they have the means of, they have the means, which I think, um, feeds into the conversation a little bit but like in that case no one thinks like oh I'm disabled I need the the person out in the front of this hotel to help me that person helps everybody <laughs> and opens the door for everyone right um and and so again it's just it's what are the it's like in those particular instances so say even the conference like maybe you had someone at the front who opens the door for everyone right uh, I, I think with the events, like, because I also want, one of the things that I try to do is I don't want people to feel bad that they aren't doing more uh, because we are, we are on this. There's actually a quote and it says the fight for justice is a marathon relay. And that's from someone named Dr. Robert Bullard. And one of the things that I, the reason why I bring up that quote a lot is because it reminds me that we're actually never going to stop fighting and working to be better in one way or another for any historically excluded group, right? That work is just going to be ongoing and it's okay to take breaks sometimes and then we come back. Um, and so even the folks who are doing it well, we're all still learning together. Language has evolved so much over the past couple of decades. And, and so I, I, I don't want to give people an easy pass, I guess I would say on the one hand, but I also don't want people to feel daunted and overwhelmed by the task at hand, because even for someone like me who has been entrenched in this work for 13 years, I'm still learning. I can't tell you about, I'm not the right person to come to if you want to learn about digital accessibility, right? I'm not the person to come to for physical ADA compliance of your office spaces, but I can talk to you about how to treat disabled people as people, right? So um, it's it's a whole system. That's why we call these systems of oppression. And systems are very large things. They, uh, one of my friends, Marie, described it as like an octopus that has multiple tentacles. But I may I may even argue that it probably has more than eight tentacles, you know, because you have early education and, and education integration. You have healthcare access. You have, you know, employment. You have law related stuff, you, you know, there's, there's so many. Um, and so that's why I also have to remind myself that I single-handedly am not going to get people to make their workspaces accessible, right? It takes a collective effort to dismantle a system. That's why we're like kind of in the situation that we're in because of the enormity of 
of oppression <laughs> um, that that exists in so many ways. And it's so deeply rooted. Right. And it's so so rooted in policy and, and historical stuff. So um, so all of that to say, uh, if you are organizing an event, it would be amazing if there's a contact information on there for someone to be able to email because my disability looks very different from someone who's a wheelchair user, right? And my access needs may look very different from, um, from someone else. So like a good example of that would be at conferences, a lot of times there's a buffet table. A buffet table is like my worst nightmare because there isn't enough table space at the buffet for me to put down my table or put down my plate, scoop out the stuff, put it on the plate. So then I'm navigating, how do I hold a plate and try to serve myself? And honestly, I've gotten to a point where I just find a friend or, you know, sometimes I wear a wrist splint on my injured arm and I like look for someone and I'm like, hey, can you help? Can you help me serve my plate? And honestly, I don't, I understand that that can be seen as a microaggression, but now I'm just at the point where I'm like, I need to eat because I will say, I will say there was a long period of time where I just did not get any food because I felt, I felt ashamed asking for help. Now I'm just like, I want those wings. I want the rice. I want the salad. Like I want the bread, like friend or person working at the conference, like would love your assistance. And I, I guess I've kind of like learned to, and I hate using the word overcome, but I've learned to overcome like the way that we view help asking for help because we're all independent humans. Like if someone offers like, and even in now current in, in this like current world, cause I haven't gone to a conference in a long time, an in-person conference in a long time, like putting my luggage in the overhead compartment. I'm like, there is no way this luggage is getting in the overhead compartment unless I have someone helping me. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I can check my bag, which I do a lot of times, but like, if you, if you want to move this plane boarding process quicker, like I'm going to, there's, there's literally no way I can get my, I can get my luggage in the overhead compartment. So, um, so yeah, I think for me, it's, it's also learning that how can I co-create an experience with you as well? Again, we don't want to put the full onus on disabled people, but if the full onus was on me, like I can't get my luggage in the overhead compartment. Right. So again, I want, I want people to like, understand it's this delicate balance between I value living with dignity Living with dignity means that I can be inter interdependent because that is part of the human experience, but I don't need to be hyper in independent. And I think that we've created this like harmful disability trope that says that um, we need to do everything by ourselves. And if we can't do everything by ourselves, that means we are deemed as like less worthy or less valued than any other person. When I'm like, if you drank a cup of coffee today, this morning, did you grow your own coffee beans? You know, like someone else, or if you did, like kudos to you. <laughs> um, but more likely than not, we didn't. And like, that's a great way to think about interdependence. It's like, we're all operating together and how can we do it in a seamless way where we're, where we're all kind of like dancing with each other? What a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. God, you must've been so hangry at those conferences <laughs> where you didn't eat. I, I mean, I, I mean, maybe that's why I'm petite and like, no, but I mean, there, but there have literally been so many, I mean, the number, so again, I started my career in investment banking and the number of like client dinners and networking events, like I, yeah. And then also like, I can't hold like a glass of wine, 21 plus, uh, I can't <laughs> hold a, I can't hold a glass of wine and network at the same time. Right. Cause I'm a left-handed handshaker. So then then I also didn't get to enjoy myself by drinking some alcohol, you know, like, um, or I would always have to stand by a table. And, and now I've like learned how to navigate. And, and again, this is like me growing into my own self-confidence as a disabled person too, that like, okay, like if there's a networking event, like I'm going to stand by a table because I want to have my glass of wine. And if they're going to be like hors d'oeuvres or anything, like I'm, it's going to go on the table. Right. So I've also learned how to adapt those environments to me. So, so again, it's this kind of like dance of the co-creating of an experience together where I understand my body the best. And if you've provided me with a baseline, which is, if you know, there's going to be a buffet there, can you make the serving area like on the table wide enough so that I can place my plate down uh, so that I can have some food. But yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, I don't think I ever got to hangry, but I was definitely a hungry young professional. 
and not like hungry in the ambitious sense, like literally hungry. <laughs> like, literally salivating over the wings. <laughs> oh, I just want to come back to, because you kind of touched on, you know, but yeah, building your confidence as a disabled person and leaning into, uh, I guess, a disabled identity. Um, and I want to come back to something that you said earlier about origin stories. And it's it's through the work of very talented and creative uh, disabled content creators, mostly online, that I have had my eyes opened to a wide range of different experiences. And I know that you've been on a podcast with uh, Tea with HB, with Blossom from Tea with HB, um, who is a wonderful, wonderful content creator, really opened my eyes to the way that disabled experiences are viewed and perceived by other people. And there's so much focus on the origin story. There's so much focus on this tragic event or illness or whatever it is, or luck of the draw, whichever circumstances have led to a person's disability. And very rarely any focus on how they're living their life joyfully, how they're leaning into their identity. And you see that so much in how disabled people are depicted in TV and film. And I mean, now increasingly we see better disability representation on screen, but sometimes, you know, I watch stuff even from like five years ago. I just, I'm just cringing and, once you start seeing it, as with a lot of things that come from systems of oppression, you can't unsee it, you see it everywhere. Um, but I wanna come back to this idea of focusing not so much on the origin stories, but on how you're living your life, because I feel like with a lot of that comes joy. And we're very big into joy at Be Seen. We know that the only way that we can really sustain our advocacy work and our activism is also through cultivating joy and that even when it comes to allyship it's really important for people to share our joy and share all the great stuff as well as the the, the struggles and, and the more negative stuff um, to have the serious chat but also the fun stuff too um, so yeah um, like how are some ways that you kind of cultivate joy in your life, um, especially when it comes to kind of curating your identity as a disabled person, as an, an, an Asian American woman, as, as all of these different kind of facets of identity that we all lean into. Mm, yeah, so I, I wanna put an asterisk in on, a, on our conversation around disability origin stories in the sense that we don't owe anyone our disability origin stories, right? And I feel that a lot of the curiosity around disability is around that first origin story, which is why I talk about that second one, because that second one about leaning into being disabled and proud and learning how to live well is actually at the root of your question, right? Which is, and I will also say that a lot of disabled people won't get to that second story. And that's not how I want to live my life, but I also just respect everyone, everyone's individual journey. So Joy for me uh, is rooted in play, I think. And uh, I always like to wear big, colorful earrings, even to like my corporate speaking engagements, because they're a reminder to me that this needs to be sustainable. And only sitting in places of, you know, some, some activism spaces are very angry. Um, and I don't want to tone police because there is a lot of pain in that anger and that expression of emotion is fine, but there needs to be a balance or, and there needs to be a balance. So I often, um, so you talked about joy, but I'm going to talk a little bit about rest. Rest is a huge part of how I make this work sustainable. And it's tied a little bit into my joy, but you would be surprised to know how much time I spend resting. And I feel very grateful. We have a team of nine folks at Diversability who help support our day-to-day -day operations and help support me resting. And resting to me also means I'm making time to go to therapy. Uh, I also have, you know, my, I have an occupational therapist for my paralyzed arm, but I've got, I've got mental health stuff I'm working to unlearn and unpack as well. So 
I just remember earlier on in my career, I was so entrenched in my work that I made no time for rest. And as a result, I made no time for joy. So I just want your listeners to remember that you, that life, yeah, life, and I'm still learning this, life is all about balance. And there's a really great quote that I revisit often from someone named Francis Weller. And they say, the work of the mature person is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other and to be stretched large by them. How much sorrow can I hold? That's how much gratitude I can give. So I'm also going to tie gratitude into joy as well. And so if I continue to think about life and my emotions as this band being stretched of the two extremes. So if I'm super angry as an activist in my work, I can only sit in that place because I also know what it feels like to sit on the other side of that and continue to stretch that band. So I continue to remind myself of stretching that band. Uh, This work is hard, but remember that your sustainability and your care is the most important and having your cup full. And if you need to take a step away, that's okay too. And I, I honestly think this really made more sense to me in this period of anti-Asian hate that we're living in, because I've had a couple of experience. I've had my own personal experiences uh, being the the victim of, of different things that have happened. But one of the things that those really got me thinking about is if someone looks at me and makes judgments about me based on my race, literally that's the only information that they have. And they have chosen that they don't like me and that they hate me. I single-handedly am not going to get them to not hate me. Right. (laughs) Um, And I thought that that was a really fascinating realization for me in my own sustainability because I started speaking out a little bit more about stop Asian hate. And then I was like, if this person literally just said to me, go back to where you came from, we don't want you here. Then I'm not going to be able to have I'm not going to I mean, I could be like, oh, I'd love to better understand, you know, what the root of of that for like what the root of you saying that came from, right? I, I, I'd love to take a restorative justice approach to that, but they already, again, based on the way I look, have such deep-rooted anti-Asian racism within them that it may take someone who's a little bit more influential in their circles to start to unlearn that rather than an Asian person who has a group they've already decided to hate. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think So I know your question was about joy, but I also just wanted to say like, no one person is going to single-handedly like overhaul the systems of oppression that many of us who have historically excluded or historically underrepresented identities continue to hold. Yeah. Well, it's exactly like you were saying, you're really coming at us with the the really deep metaphors today, but it's (laughs) like exactly what you were saying about this band. And I none of those things exist in a vacuum we don't just get joy in a vacuum there's you know that there there is always a kind of seesawing and we as human beings live between various shades of of emotional experiences um yeah and, and i and i will say the reason why i got to that like metaphor of the band is because i sat in those spaces of grief and and tragedy like after the car accident for so long and I thought that that was the only place that I could be right and so then I I mean I only came across this quote like a year or two ago and when I saw it I was like oh I have the capacity to sit in spaces of immense amount of gratitude and joy because I know what it's like to sit on the other side so let me go like run to that other side and see what it looks like right and then I was like oh, like we can hold both grief and gratitude at the same time. And that's okay. Again, we're existing in these paradoxes and that's just part of the human experience, right? I, I think, I guess I come back to what I started with by saying like allyship is nuance. It's being able to understand that like, exactly as you said, like nothing sits in a vacuum. Yeah, exactly. And we are complex enough human beings to be able to hold all the different things at the same time, like you said. Um, I was really sorry to hear that you had been a victim of violent um, racist, a violent racist attack. Um, it's honestly a very 
scary time. Um, I think particularly for, for, for Asian people in, in the US. Um, and you mentioned that you became more vocal about your experience um, as, as an AAPI person. And you were speaking out a little bit more about the Stop Asian Hate movement. Um, and I feel that, yeah, I mean, you, you, you really sit at a, an intersection of different um, identities. Um, and as you very, very well explained at the beginning, your, the way that you processed and um, understood your disability was informed at a very early stage by your Asian heritage, um, by your Taiwanese and Vietnamese heritage. And um, yeah, so I, I guess if you are happy to talk to us a little bit about, you know, what it's like for you at the moment, um, being an Asian American person in this current climate of increased violence and, and hostility, but there's also, um, you know, that intersecting element of disability, also of being a woman. Um, there are a lot of different factors at play. Yeah, um, well, I'll start by saying, about a year ago, Michelle Kim, who is a really incredible human being, I don't even know how to describe her, um, posted in the wake of the Atlanta spa shooting, she said, you know, she's like, I'm really gutted. And I just want people to know that Asian women have been unsafe in this country and overseas for a long time. And I haven't forgotten those words because it started to make things make sense again around how I feel around my sense of safety. And as we're recording this, we've just passed a year, a one year since the Atlanta spa shootings where eight people were killed and six of whom were Asian women. And that released, and with this anniversary that came up, it started getting me to really reflect on my own experiences. And so then I like kind of went back on my timeline because I've talked about each one of these and I thought that they were isolated incidents, but they're not. And so in 2016, I was like walking down the street at 930 in the morning and I was punched in the face. And then in 2018, I was followed home from the airport. And in 2019, I was aggressively harassed on the bus on public transit to the point that the person tried to forcefully pull me out of my seat while, and other, other uh, bystanders were there to kind of pull him away. And then just last year, I had the go back to where you came from. We don't want you here as my friend and I were driving to a hike in, in, um, in Northern California. And so as I look through that timeline of these are things that have happened to Tiffany, I feel really heartbroken that things haven't gotten better. It seems like every single week, there is a new story of a handful of Asian women being attacked or being killed. And that is terrifying. Like, I don't really curse, but if I could use the F word, like that is it, it, you know, and, and I'm talking to Asian women here, like that is a real threat. You know, I talk a, a lot in therapy. We talk about, is this a real threat or is this the perceived that threat? I'm like, this is real. <laughs> um, and and like, I wish I could say, you know, and then we have these like strategies to manage our anxiety. And I'm just like, every single time I walk out of my home, I don't even know what's going to happen, you know? So, so that's kind of like one part of it. And, you know, there's, there's one other incident that happened in 2020, which is right at the beginning of the pandemic, I got, I got profiled and pulled into a quarantine room at JFK airport and interrogated about when my last trip to China was. And I was flying back from Tanzania after I had just climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. So it, it just felt kind of confusing because they were like, okay, when's the last time you were in China? Like when were you in China? How long were you there? I was like, uh, the last time I was in China, I think was like 2012. And then I was like, why is everyone in the quarantine room also Asian? Um, but, it, but it's kind of like these little microaggressions, but Honestly, up until last year, I hadn't put that whole timeline together, right, of all of these, I, what I thought were isolated incidents. And so I kind of just like want to have that bucket of like being an Asian woman. And the thing about my disability, so disability is also a spectrum, is that I can, I, I technically present as non-disabled. 
So unless I made a big hoo-ha about the the buffet the buffet <laughs> at the at the conference, I might just look like another conference goer, right? But at the same time, on paper, I have like the formal name of my injury is called a brachial plexus injury. So, and, and I live with PTSD. So on paper, I have a mental health disability and a physical disability that when we were in the height of the pandemic and there was like what we call like hospital bed triage happening, which is letting the hospitals decide like who gets a bed and who doesn't, who is deemed as less worthy. Um, disabled people were like at the top of that line. Um, and so like, I had this kind of like compounding fear. This is like where intersectionality comes to play. I had this compounding fear of who's going to attack me because I'm Asian and people think that I started COVID, um, <laughs> combined with the history of how Asian women have been treated here. In, and I'm, you know, us based, So I have a very us gaze on this, how not only I have been treated as an Asian woman, but how just Asian women as a collective whole have been treated, which then kind of like goes into the string of how Asian folks have been treated as perpetual foreigners in, in this country. Right. And so that's why it's even funny that when I did my introduction, I don't speak any other languages. Like I couldn't even go back to Vietnam or, or Taiwan and be able to navigate. I mean, hopefully I'd pick something up and it'd be cool to learn a lot, another language but I like I was born here. I don't know any other place to go back to, quote unquote, go back to. Right. And it doesn't feel good to feel like you don't belong. Right. Which is so much at the root of the work that I currently do. So there was kind of this compounding fear where it's like, who's going to attack me on the street because I look Asian and I am Asian. And then if I get really sick and I end up in a hospital who's not going to give me a bed because of my disability status. And then I had a lot of people, you know, come at me in the comments being like, oh, well, you're young. Well, you'll still get a bed. Well, we don't know. Like when push comes to shove, I have a big D disability on my medical records, which I'm very proud of. But at the same time, other people don't view it the same way. Right. And um, and then people were like, oh, you know, that person who said that remark to you to go back to where you came from, you know, wasn't really about you being Asian. It was about like not wanting to have tourists here. And I was like, when push comes to shove, like anytime an Asian woman is attacked, whether you deem it a hate crime or not, we feel it. Every single time a disabled person passes away due to medical malpractice or lack of access to healthcare, like we all feel it. So whether or not it is driven by, you know, some combination of racism, misogyny, or ableism, when it happens to someone who looks like us, we feel like it. So the other thing I wanted to say at the intersection of being like a disabled Asian woman is a lot of this unpacking that I've had to do that because I'm the daughter of Asian immigrants and the first thing you see is that I'm Asian, my Asian identity discriminates so much against my disability identity and it's existing in one body and it's so confusing. That part is, is what I'm still kind of like grappling with and trying to learn. So the fact that I was born a woman, I was already put on a second rung below my brothers. Um, then now I have a physical visible disability, one you can see, because I know that there are probably a lot of Asian folks out there who have non-visible disabilities who are not vocal about them because of how much shame uh, they have internalized through their families to present as healthy or like present as non-disabled. So, so yeah, I, I think, I think I'm still trying to grapple with that. And like part of the reason why I mentioned in my intro that I never really embraced or acknowledged my race is because I grew up believing that my only pathway to success was through assimilation, was through invisibility, was through like blending in with the wallpaper, right? And now I have like competing parts of my own identity that don't like other parts of my identity. It's, it's, it's like confusing. This is why like I love when we have an opportunity to talk about intersectionality, but I also want people to understand the nuance, right? So the number of people that I've met that I told, like I did not talk about the car accident for 12 years and the number of my like non-Asian friends who are also disabled that I share with that with are so baffled. Another nuance here is like my mom is not supportive of my disability advocacy work and my non-white 
disabled or my non-Asian disabled friends are like so confused by that. But it makes sense because my disability is tied to my family trauma and family trauma equals shame. And you don't tell anyone about that. Right. And so. So, yeah, I'm just trying to learn all of the nuances that kind of like exist in all of my intersectional identities sitting in this one body. And I think for a long time, I didn't like erasure, I believed was my pathway to success. So don't lean into your femininity. Like, and again, I started my career in financial services. So like, be like a man, you know, and so many of these, like, like a man thing, I'm just like, no. And then, you know, hiding my arm. So now I'm just on, I'm trying to erase my own erasure. Uh, But I actually think that's a huge part of why I had never really acknowledged or thought about my race because my race and not my race, but like the cultural nuances that existed within my race didn't like the fact that I was a woman or leaned into my femininity and didn't like the fact that I was disabled and proud to own it and wanted to show other people. So that's the end of my TED talk, but I appreciate you giving me the space to kind of like unpack some of that. I think no, we appreciate you. I think I could (laughs) listen to you talk all day, every day. Like you, you have opened my eyes so much, even in this like short hour that we've been talking, you know, it's absolutely wonderful to hear all the work you're doing and hear more about that. Um, I, th- I mean, we are coming to the end, but I'm like, oh, I just want to carry on. I just want to hear more. But, um, but this people- is what you said about like how we, you know, we all feel, you know, when, when an Asian woman is attacked, like yeah. we all feel that and whether or not you think it's a hate crime or whatever, it's like the, the constant questioning and wondering is also exhausting, you know, like, oh, okay, so did this just happen to me because I'm a woman? Did it happen to me because I'm Asian, because of the way I look, because of whatever? Um, it's it's just, it's exhausting, but yeah. it's just so true also that there's so much nuance and that everyone's experiences are completely different. And that's why it's so unhelpful to ever hold one person as the, the mouthpiece for a particular community. Like what you were saying earlier about how, you know, you can't speak for accessibility needs for all accessibility needs um and and yeah it's just uh I feel like we could have a whole podcast of just you talking or just like a tiny lecture yeah but I'll let Charlie wrap up yeah exactly I mean obviously I would assume that all our listeners will want to find out more so where can people find you Tiffany and please plug whatever you want to plug here this is your your two minutes for to plug everything Yeah, there are there are two places you can find me slash us. Uh, so if you're looking to follow more of me, uh, you can follow me across social media at I'm Tiffany U. That's the letter I, the letter M, followed by my first and last name. And if you are disabled or want to be more committed to being a better ally to disabled people, I would encourage you to join the different communities that we have at Diversability. On our channels, we're posting educational content. We host events every single month, disabled and non-disabled. Folks are welcome to join because we actually have a lot of folks who have non-visible disabilities and aren't ready yet joining just to be witness to the conversations that are happening. And then they appear after a couple of years and say, as a function of being part of this group, I'm ready to share my story and I'm ready to be proud. So you can follow Diversability at Diversability and that's D-I-V-E-R-S-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Incredible. So we'll make sure that those links are included in the show notes as well. So if you want to check them out, you can read them on all good podcast platforms. Um, So this Oh, wait, no, I nearly forgot the most important question. We have one question, Tiffany, that we ask every single guest. It's a quick fire. You can't think about it too much. I need a one word answer. Rice or noodles? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said rice on noodles. And I was like, <laughs> what? Uh, rice well, we can do that. <laughs> um, okay, rice or noodles, rice. Okay, yeah, that's the right answer. I don't need anything else from here. But it has to be uh, white no, rice. Like, yeah, that's fine. There's no right. There's no right answer, Charlie. No, there is. Some of us. <laughs> there is the right answer is rice, and that's where we're ending this podcast. <laughs> this was she's like, she's like I got the answer I want. Yeah, um, that's all I need. Not over. <laughs> this was, but where are you from? A podcast by Be Seen, Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network. We were joined by the incredible Tiffany Yu today, um, and myself and Mayan from Be Seen. Um, you can find Be Seen on Instagram at 
B-E-S-E-A dot N and on Twitter, B-E-S-E-A underscore N. Um, we also have a coffee page. I notice every t- time um, we do the outro, we always say Kofi, but it's actually coffee. So it's ko-fi.com forward slash be seen. Um, if you'd like to sling us a few quid for a bowl of noodles, if you've enjoyed what you've heard here today or the work we do in general, um, that does help us continue our advocacy work. Um, and finally, if you're interested in EC Heritage Month, which is a huge project that Be Seen undertakes, um, the next one is launching soon. So keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> um, so I just want to say thank you again, Tiffany, for joining us. Um, we are huge fans of you at Be Seen, um, and it's been so amazing to have you share all your wisdom and your wonderful quotes and metaphors today um, on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tiffany. Thank you. Bye. Bye.